Good morning, y'all. Good morning. My name is Ed Griffinhagen. I'm one of the pastors on uh, our staff at Church on the Trail. <clears throat> I got to read you quickly a text. We have a church staff text group, and this is a text that happened sometime in the during the first service, and it's addressed to my wife Susan. From I, I'm going to uh, to protect the guilty. I'm not going to tell you who it's from. But it says, Susan, I'm going to need you to add a little powder to the top front of Ed's head so the spotlight isn't reflecting off it so hard. Y'all, if I blind you with my bald head, I apologize. <laughs> um, anyway, I'm, good morning. I'm, I'm thankful that y'all are here. I'm thankful if you're watching uh, on YouTube or on Facebook, joining us. Maybe, maybe Right now you're listening or watching this and it's Wednesday or Thursday this week, but we're thankful that God has got you here. He's got you here for a reason. Um, he's sovereign and, and you're here for a reason. It didn't just happen randomly. Uh, I want to tell you, I, I mentioned a component of this last Sunday, but I want to tell you that uh, our men's pastor, Richard Moore, uh, we found out this week that his son Derek was died, 23 years old, was diagnosed with leukemia. And I want us, he lives in, in Virginia, and I want us to, um, and crazily enough, Richard can't go because they will only allow at the hospital one person to be a visitor during the duration of the patient's stay. Not one a day, just one unique person. So anyway, Richard actually is at home sick right now. He's not feeling good. But I want us to pray as a church family for, their, for his family, for Derek, Lord. You are sovereign, you are graceful, Lord we know how much you love us, we pray that you would give the doctors um, treating Derek, that you would give them wisdom, that you would give them discernment, that you would use their skills, the doctors, the nurses, the hospital staff, that you would, you would use their skills to bring comfort and healing um, into Derek's body. Lord, that you would miraculously do things in that situation. Lord, that you would uh, give all of their family and Derek, uh, who is in the midst of a journey, in the midst of a uh, treatment regimen, that you would give all of them a peace that is only explainable through you. And so, Lord, we lift them up. We put them in your hands. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I want to give you one, and I would ask you all pray every day for them. Uh, I want to give you one more little thing, and that is this. We have a ministry in our church called Joyful Hearts. It's a ministry. Uh, it's an outreach. It falls kind of under, uh, under our missions and outreach, but uh, we have you know, a homeless ministry we, that, that has been going for four or five years, and we have a, a foster care prevention ministry called Generations that reaches kids who are in, in uh, jeopardy of being put in the system. But then we have a, a ministry that is a partnership. It's called Joyful Hearts with the Oaks of Grove Park, which is an assisted living center in Columbus. And outside this, that wall on the other side in the foyer, you'll see a table with a bunch of folded up pieces of paper and stuff and glue and pens and markers and stuff. And there's about 70 or 80 residents there. And we partner with them. And we, we are uh, person, writing personal, making personal Christmas cards to each of those 70 or 80 residents. So if you can find a minute when you leave today, if you could go out there, it would be awesome. If you could just create a card, there's a list of names of the, of the residents. Just make a card for them. It brings unbelievable joy to those folks' lives with the things that we uh, over time have done with them. So I'd ask you to do that. Now we are in a, a time in our worship service. And, and actually, if you have any questions about Joyful Hearts, if you'll see Patty Freeman leads that ministry, uh, you can... Uh, Email her or you can email info at churchonthetrail.org if you got a question about it. But now we are in this time in our worship service where we are going to receive an offering. <clears throat> and I want you to know that the Lord wants all of us to trust him with everything that we are. That does include our resources. These, the different ministries that we, that we have, the, just really the, the fueling of our church is done through and provided for by the generosity of the people in our church. So I would ask you to commit to, to tithe, to commit to giving, to commit to being generous in every area of your life, not just your financial resources, but that's one of, one of them. There's blessings from generosity, the way that it makes you feel. And, uh, and so I'm going to ask you to commit to do that. And we have multiple ways 
that you can give at Church on the Trail. We have a new way. It's at the bottom of the screen. You can Venmo. We told you last week or the week before they were working on that. So you can Venmo at Church on the Trail uh, if you'd like to do that. But there's a kiosk out there. There's black boxes around the church in here and out there. Uh, you can go to churchonthetrail.org slash give. Multiple ways uh, to do that. So I want to pray over that offering, and, uh, and then we're going to jump into the message. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to give. We thank you for the opportunity to be generous. Lord, your word tells us to do that. Your word tells us to be generous. Your word tells us to tithe. And Lord, I know because I lived it. I know that it is sort of the last thing that we have trust and faith in. Lots of times it is the last thing. Lord, we trust you, but I don't quite trust you with my checkbook. Lord, I know that's the way it works for most of us. But I, So, Lord, I pray um, that we would all come to a place in our life where we can trust you with everything. And, Lord, we pray that you would take the tithe, that you would take the offerings that are given in our church, that you would give the leadership in the church wisdom, that you would give us discernment in the use of the resources, that we would always be committed to using the resources provided um, by the folks in this church to use them to lead people into a relationship with you, to use them to grow the relationships uh, with the folks in the church. Lord, we pray that, uh, that you would do that. We trust that you would do that. And Lord, we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. So y'all, we're in week three of a series that we're calling Blueprint. Blueprint is a, is a little spoke in the wheel of a bigger a, a, a bigger thing that we're doing, which is walking through Paul's letter to the church in Rome, walking through the book of Romans. Blueprint is chapters 9, 10, and 11. And so that's a series inside of a bigger series as we have walked for a few months, several months, or walking through, uh, through Romans. Last week, we kind of went through the last half of chapter 9, and we ended last week with the, what, what I believe the point is, or what the point of that passage was, and that is that God tolerates us. He tolerates our, our stupidity. He tolerates our sinfulness. He tolerates our junk that we bring all the time. He tolerates our self-centeredness, our selfishness. He tolerates all of that for one reason, and that is to put on display for all of history to see the riches of his glory and the mercy that he provides to put on display for all of us and for all of history to see the riches of his glory and the mercy that he provides for us. Today, that was the culmination of that passage uh, in chapter 9 that we looked at last week. Today, we're going to jump into chapter 10. We're only going to walk through about three or four verses. I said a couple of weeks ago, two or three weeks ago, when we were at the beginning of chapter 9, that that beginning of chapter 9 provides for, for us a, a Pretty rare glimpse into the heart of the Apostle Paul. If you remember, at the beginning of chapter 9, Paul kind of records these words, and, and these words display a, a brokenness, a, a, a heartache, an anguish. Um, Paul was, was really just hurt and broken up over the lostness, L-O-S-T-N-E-S-S, -S, the lostness of his kin people, the lostness of his Jewish brothers and sisters. And he said, if you remember in, in, at the beginning of chapter 9, you know, if I, could, if I could just give back, if I get a refund on my salvation, if that would lead, obviously you can't get a refund on your salvation. But if he could do that and it would lead his people into a saving relationship with the Lord, he'd do it. It's almost like he said, I'd sell my soul to the devil if it'd get my people saved. And we really see kind of that same feeling at the beginning of chapter 10. Start with verse 1. Paul writes, brothers and sisters, excuse me, brothers, my heart's implied in there is brothers and sisters. My heart's desire and prayer to God for them, who is them, them is Israel, them is the Jews. My prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. You know, our prayer for everybody in our world Everybody in our sphere of influence and everybody on the planet, that should be our prayer, is that they be saved. 
So Paul goes on in verse 2. He says, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, a zeal, enthusiasm, passion, um, that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. And that knowledge is not head knowledge. That knowledge is uh, relational knowledge. That knowledge is uh, experiential knowledge. It's not just I know about something. So for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, their own what? Their own righteousness. They didn't submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Those four verses, I think we see three things. We may see more than three things, but I'm going to tell you, I think we see three things. And those three things, everybody got a worship God? If you don't have a worship God, raise your hand because we want to get one into your hands. But we see three things. We see, number one, we see Paul's desire. We see Paul's desire. And then number two, we see Israel's mistake. And then number three, we see the remedy for Israel's mistake, the remedy for their mistake. In verse 1, we see Paul's deep concern, his heartfelt prayer to the Lord to see his people get saved. So we see that that concern, that desire, it's really the same anguish that he felt or that he, that he wrote at the beginning of chapter 9. And y'all, it seems tough with Jewish folks. Like what's going to happen to Jews who believe in God but not in Christ? Now that sounds um, oxymoronical. That's another that's one of my words. It seems nonsensical. Right? I can't spell oxymoronical, so don't even ask me. But it sounds nonsensical because... You know, God's nature is God's nature. He's Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. He's a triune God. And when you say Jews, I grew up my whole life, I said, I believe, of course I believe in God. I'm not an atheist. I was Jewish, but I believe in God. So what happens to Jews who, who seemingly believe in God, the same God, seemingly, won't they be saved? Well, if that were true, Paul would not have worked so hard It's not just belief in God that saves you. Obviously, that's a pretty major component of it, right? But that's not not the salvation formula. That's not it. And if it were, then Paul wouldn't have spent so much time, sacrificed so much of his life trying to teach Jews about Christ. Because Jesus is the most complete, the most... uh, the fullest, the most complete revelation of who God is, you cannot fully know God apart from knowing Christ. You cannot fully know God apart from knowing Jesus. And because God appointed Jesus to bring God and humans together, no one can come to him by any other path, any other method. There's one way. And there's one, there is one way only. And so the Jews, like any other, uh, any other person that has ever lived, can find salvation only through Jesus Christ. In Christ alone. Write that somewhere in your worship guide. In Christ alone. John chapter 14. He puts it super succinctly, the apostle John does. He's talking to Thomas and he says this. This is Jesus' words. Uh, starting in verse 6 of of chapter 14. I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one, does it say some people? No, it says no one comes to the Father except through me. No one except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. So Paul, again, he's yearning and he's longing that they would come to Christ. And we see his desire in those words in that first verse. And then we see Israel's mistake. Paul's people. We see their tragic mistake really in verses 2 and 3. And you got to, we're going to have to talk through this because it's not the easiest thing to get our arms around. But verse 2, for I bear them witness that they have zeal for God. They got passion, they got enthusiasm for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant, there's kind of three issues in verse 3. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God 
And because they're ignorant of the righteousness of God, they seek to establish their own righteousness. Because of that, they didn't submit to God's righteousness. Paul knew from his own experience that the Jews had a zeal, a passion, and enthusiasm for God and a zeal and a passion and an enthusiasm for the law. Those two things are kind of linked together. Their passion for God equals and has resulted in a passion uh, uh, for the law. Now, the problem was this, that their knowledge, because he says, but not by knowledge, their knowledge was not full. Their knowledge was, uh, was not complete. Their knowledge was, it wasn't perfect. It was not uh, based on relationship. It was just based on the head. And they were too, and it was based on their knowledge of the law. And you know, when, when we talk about the law, sometimes the scripture is talking about the Torah, T-O-R-A-H. That's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the first five books. Sometimes the law is a reference to all of the Old Testament. Sometimes the law is a reference to all of the Old Testament along with all of the Jewish writings that is kind of um, um, rules and regs that they've added to. Not scripture, but they've added to. It just, it really, it refers to most of the time to all of that. And so they were so busy trying to keep all of that, all of the, the law and all of the rules and the regs, that their enthusiasm, their zeal, their passion was actually keeping them. It was like a stumbling block between them and, and the way that God had designed salvation. That was exactly Paul's state of mind before he met Christ. It was exactly where his brain and his heart were before he met Christ on that Damascus road. We're going to get back to that in a sec. In fact, he was so zealous, he was so passionate, he was so uh, enthusiastic about uh, God and his, his, quote, religion, was he persecuted Christians. We'll get back to that in a second too. But his passion, his zeal, his enthusiasm was very much based on a misunderstanding of, and a twisting of God's word, and so was the passion of his fellow Jews. Can you be passionate about something and be wrong? You absolutely can. Look at Islam. There's probably not more, hardly more passionate people on the planet. So you can absolutely be passionate and zealous and enthusiastic and be wrong having twisted scripture somehow. And so this misunderstanding that the Jews had is this, that they saw righteousness, not internal, but they saw righteousness in terms of outward actions. It's on the screen probably, yeah. Outward actions and rituals and customs and ceremonies and tradition and all of these things that are external to, to, to the Lord and external to me and you. Outward actions, they equated righteousness with that. They didn't see that their very own scriptures, you know, who did God entrust with the scripture? The Jews. They didn't see that their very own scriptures pointed to Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah. And so Paul, in, this, in the first part of Philippians chapter 3, it's another glimpse into Paul's heart. He is remembering in chapter 3 of Philippians, at least the beginning of it, he's remembering being stuck on the treadmill of effort. Any of y'all ever been stuck on the treadmill of effort? You're running trying to do and to do and to do and to work and to work and to work and to check boxes. And, and that Philippians 3 kind of records Paul doing that. And you can't, you're on that treadmill. You never get to where you're going because you can't get there. Paul record, listen to what Paul says in verse, uh, starting in verse 4 of Philippians 3. And he's talking about himself. He says, I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. He's saying, I have a reason to be confident because of who I am and because of my tradition and because of my heritage and because of my grandpappy and, my, and all that stuff. So he says, I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more, Paul says. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of life. I was of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew among Hebrews. Paul was a super Jew. That's what he would say. As to the law, a Pharisee, 
as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. And then, but then he says, but, in verse 7, but whatever gain I had through all of that, all of that stuff that he just described, whatever gain I had I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Do y'all realize that surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord? For his sake, Paul says, I've suffered the loss of all things and I count all of that stuff as rubbish. He didn't say stuff. But I count all of that uh, as rubbish. Why? In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Not doing, but on faith. Y'all, by all human standards, any way you would ever measure it, I said a minute ago, Paul was a super Jew. By any stretch of measure, any way that you would gauge it, Paul was an unbelievably successful, quote, practicing Jew. But he came to realize that, that it was actually a self-styled, self-approved, self-justified religion. And so in order to believe in Christ, Paul had lost, verse 8 of Philippians 3, Paul had lost all those things. He'd lost all those things to discover that what he had gained was of immeasurable value. What he had gained was of infinite value. You can't put a number on it. But these Jews, they drew up all kinds of rules and all kinds of, of regulations and all kinds of things in addition to God's word. And then they worked and worked and worked and worked and tried to achieve and achieve and achieve. Why? To make themselves word be religiously good and to make themselves religiously acceptable to God. They tried to work to make themselves acceptable to God. You ever do that? You ever feel that way? Raise your hand if you've ever felt that way. If you, your hand ain't up, you're lying. We all have done that, y'all. We all have done that. And so if this righteousness that they, the Jews that they sought to, verse 3 says, to establish on their own, if that is attainable, if you can run on that treadmill long enough, if you can work hard enough, if you can, can uh, the righteousness that you seek to, because to, you've defined it yourself, if, you, if it's attainable, it would naturally follow that you could then boast in who? Yourself. You would glorify yourself. You would justify yourself and you'd be saved think about this now if you could do that you would be saved completely independently of God because you did it right you 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 ran hard enough or you did enough or you fed just enough homeless hungry people or you wrote just enough cards out there for the folks at the Oaks of Grove Park or you provided enough beds for the the people that, uh, that needed in the generations ministry, or you, you did enough of whatever it is, then you can boast in yourself and you can justify yourself and you can glorify yourself. And in fact, the only thing that God would even have anything to do with it, would be, the only role that the Lord would play is that he would be the provider of the boxes for you to check. He, he, the only thing he would do is he'd put the check boxes over there and then you would do and you would do and you would do and you would check the boxes and check the boxes and you did it yourself. If, if it worked that way, that's what it would look like. And y'all, I get it like I get it more than you could ever imagine. That is exactly the way I grew up. It is exactly the way I grew up. Grew up Jewish. I grew up exactly like that. I was circumcised on the eighth day of my life. I remember it. It was very traumatic. <laughs> but I was circumcised on the eighth day of my life. I was born Jewish, born into that, the covenant community of Judaism. In fact, my family tree goes back to the tribe of Benjamin. My view of the church 
all growing up till I was 37, y'all. My view of the church, my view of Christians was that, y'all, you people were crazy. Like, you people were crazy. My view of your view was that you could, and it was ignorant. And I ain't stupid, but I was ignorant. My view was that you, your, my view was that your view was that you could live however you wanted to, you could act however you wanted to, you could treat people however you wanted to, you could do whatever you want to, want to do, you can act like a fool, you can act mean and whatever, bitter, whatever, and then you just said, I'm sorry, and you'd be forgiven. Because I totally misunderstood the righteousness that God offers. I was ignorant, and Paul says that in verse 3. I was ignorant of the righteousness of God. Verse 3 was me 1,000% for being ignorant of the righteousness of God. And if you're ignorant of that and you have any spiritual thoughts in your mind, then you got to create your own. That's what verse 3 says. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. That verse applies one million percent to me. I was ignorant of the righteousness of God. I sought to figure out my own, provide my own, and therefore I didn't submit to God's. Here's the essence of Israel's mistake. Here's the essence of, their, of my mistake for 37 years. Regardless of sincerity, because you can be sincerely wrong, so regardless of sincerity, uh, no human effort can ever substitute for the righteousness that God provides by the death, burial, and resurrection of his son. No human effort can ever, ever, ever substitute for that. It can't. It can't, it can't, it can't. The only way to earn, quote, earn salvation is by being perfect. And we're so far from perfect by the time our feet hit the floor getting out of the bed in the morning. So the only way to earn it is to be perfect, and that's impossible. So God's righteousness is justification by faith alone. It's justification by faith alone. And that doesn't mean that what you do and how you act is, is irrelevant. Of course that doesn't mean that. But the justification by faith alone results in the way that you act and speak and treat. It's not the other way around. And it's not just faith, in, it's not just faith for faith's sake. It's not, it's not, faith, in, uh, it's not faith alone in um, Buddha. No, it's faith alone. Write this in your worship guide. Faith alone in Christ alone. It's, faith, it's the object of your faith. It's the object. It's not faith. It's the object of your faith. So faith alone in Christ alone. And all we get to do, all we can do, all we should do is just show up with our empty hands and receive salvation as the gift that it is and just be so thankful. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just so being redundant again, but I wake up every day, y'all, I cannot believe I'm saved. And the only thing I can do is just hold my hands out and say, thank you, Lord. Thank you. Because I bring nothing to the table other than those empty hands. And I'm just so thankful. Verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. This is one of my most favoritest. Is that grammatically correct? This is one of my most favoritest verses. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And I want to dive into it for a few minutes. And really, uh, first thing is I believe it's one of those places in Scripture that gets wildly misinterpreted and wildly misapplied. You hear people say, we're not under the law, we're under grace. Well, okay. But most of the time when people say that, most of the time I would argue that they're justifying their misbehavior. We're not under the law, we're under grace, so I can go be a fool. Or I was a fool last night, well, we're not under law anymore, we're under grace. So, so they justified whatever they did. As if acting right is unnecessary and that God doesn't care 
if you act like an idiot. God does care if you act like an idiot. But you didn't do anything to earn the salvation, so you're not going to do anything to lose it. All right? So that's a given. But here's the deal. That, that, that lie, that lie that I just said, we're not under the law anymore. We're under grace, so therefore I can do whatever I want. Don't buy that lie. You know why I don't buy that lie? It cheapens grace. It totally cheapens grace. It cheapens what happened outside the city gates in Jerusalem on that cross. It cheapens it. Like it, 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 it's almost like when you do that, you're walking by and spitting on the cross. Don't cheapen grace. And it really it does it because it minimizes the catastrophe that sin is. Because sin is a catastrophe. Sin is a catastrophe that the cross fixed, right? And that freedom that is available to us, it's unbelievable. So don't cheapen the cross. I'd also argue that most of the time when people misapply, misconstrue, misinterpret verse 4 of Romans 10, it is because they, they say Christ is the end of the law, period as if that's the end of the sentence. There's six more words in the English. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. He's the end of the law for righteousness, right? That's a tough verse. I want to dig into that. I believe it's one of the greatest gospel statements ever. I think it's one of the greatest Jesus-focused statements that Paul makes in all of the New Testament. So I want us to understand the ginormity, G-I-N-O-R-M-I-T-Y. You may say ginormousness. We need to understand how huge that statement is and who it's coming from. And so I want us to look to revisit a little bit at least. Somebody should hashtag ginormity. That's kind of a cool word. But I want us to visit a little bit of Paul's testimony for the context of, you know, when you really know where Paul's coming from, it, it really makes his letters just explode. And so I want to look a little bit at that for context. You know, Paul absolutely had the greatest influence uh, on the heart and the life of the early church other than Christ himself. Um, but he also zealously, passionately, enthusiastically hunted and persecuted Christians. Paul was a Pharisee. Paul studied under and was a disciple of a guy named Gamaliel. Gamaliel still to this day is considered, if not the greatest, one of the very greatest rabbis by Judaism. Paul was sold out to the law. Paul was sold out to, uh, to obedience to the law, almost like the law had, not even almost, it probably had. The law had become an idol. But the sure enough truth is this, if any memory that we would ever have of Paul would have faded into the sands of time had he not met Christ on that Damascus road. And so Luke, who wrote Luke and Acts, you know, Luke, uh, Acts is like Luke part two, but uh, Luke records Paul's conversion in chapter nine of Acts. And it was shortly after Stephen, who was one of Jesus' guys, is stoned uh, to death in Acts chapter seven, and we believe that Paul was present at that. Stephen gets stoned in Acts chapter 7 to death. Acts 9 records Paul's conversion. As soon as that happened to Stephen, Paul leaves Jerusalem with hatred and venom and a forked tongue and just loathing everything that is about Jesus or his followers and he travels with written authority from the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the ruling council in Jerusalem, generally made up of Pharisees and Sadducees, but they were the ruling council. And Paul leaves Jerusalem with written authority from them to bring back in shackles any of his followers, of Christ's of Christ followers. In Paul's mind, their blasphemy, their heresy warranted death and he was the judge and the jury. So Paul and his band of brothers are traveling down uh, this road on the way to Damascus uh, when Acts 9.3 says this, Suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. Luke goes on in verse 4, And falling to the ground, he's talking about Paul, 
he heard a voice saying to him, and Paul's name was Saul at the time. He heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And Paul comes out of that encounter several verses later in verse 20, and, and Luke writes this, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying he is the Son of God. So Paul is the poster child for radical life change upon meeting Christ. Paul goes from persecutor to proclaiming in the synagogue, this dude is the Son of God. Paul wasn't hearing things on that road. Paul wasn't hallucinating on that road. He knew, he knew, zero doubt, that he had just met Jesus of Nazareth. He knew everything changed in that moment. He knew that his life would never be the same. In fact, he knew the whole world's life would never be the same. Y'all, you cannot meet Christ and be the same. You cannot. Everybody should be screaming amen. You cannot meet gaze upon the very face of God and be the same on the other side of it. You can't. It just doesn't work that way. And Paul gets knocked off his horse and he meets Christ and he knew things would never be the same. And I would ask you, have you today, have you met Jesus ever in your life? Have you ever met him? Maybe you're today on your own little Damascus road and maybe you got more traveling on that road to do I don't know I hope you don't have any more traveling to do I hope you get knocked off that horse today if you're watching somehow or if you're here I hope you get knocked off that horse today if you've never met him because you get knocked off that horse you know where you land at the foot of the cross and you meet the Lord the way Paul did 2,000 years ago for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. That word end in Greek is telos. And Paul wrote these words about 25 uh, uh, years after that event. He wrote these words in Romans about 25 or so years after it happened. And there's lots of opinion as to what that word telos means. Theologians run the gamut on it. Some say it means goal or termination or cessation. The complete Jewish Bible translation, which is a Bible that a man named Dan Brim gave me about four, three or four years ago, the complete Jewish Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, it translates, verse 4, I have it up there, for the goal, for the goal at which the Torah, the Torah would be the law, we talked about that a minute ago, for the goal at which the Torah aims is the Messiah. So think about that. The goal of the scripture is to introduce you to the Christ. So the goal at which the Torah aims is the Messiah who offers righteousness to everyone who trusts. Who offers righteousness to everyone who trusts, everyone who believes, everybody who has faith. Now even among those who think end, E-N-D, the word end is the correct translation. There's a bunch of opinions on what end means. You know, did, did Christ's death, burial, and resurrection abolish the law did it no it did not do we now not have a moral duty to act with integrity is that what it means no that's not what it means you know this righteousness that Paul talks about in this verse is this misunderstood righteousness that Jews were trying to achieve by works on that treadmill we talked about all of that nonsense is over now that's what Paul says Jesus is the end of any sort of function of the law like that. And then the end of the verse says, to everyone who believes. And that addresses justifying faith, saving faith. Christ as the subject and the focus of that sentence is the end of the law for those who place saving faith in him. Did y'all hear that? Christ as the, is it still on the screen? Yeah, Christ as the subject and the object, what did I say? The object, it's about the object of your faith. Christ as the subject and the object of the whole sentence, of the whole sentence, brings an end to the function of the law for those who place saving faith in him. A guy named F.F. F. Bruce, great writer, wrote a book, lots of books, but he wrote one called Paul, Apostle of the Heart Set Free. You can read a good book about Paul, read that book. 
here's what he said. And he used a great word. He said, Paul surrendered his will to the risen Christ who had appeared to him. The risen Christ who from this time on displaced the law as the center of Paul's life and thought. Paul's words, the end of the law, well, let me even back up. It di- Christ displaced the law. For Paul, the law was the center of his life and thought. Now Christ is the center of his life and thought. 37 years, the law was the center of Ed's life and thought. January 1st, 2017, Christ became the center of my life and my thought. Because why? Because I met Christ. I gazed on the very face of God, and you cannot be the same on the other side of that. And so that word displaced is great. Paul's words, the end of the law, they don't point to some moment when Jesus ascended to the Father. They don't point to some moment. They don't even point to the, the, the moment of death, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. They don't point to that moment in time as some moment when the law is repealed. I would describe it like this. As the end of a season of life in which the relationship with God rests on the law and the opening of a new season. What does Paul call us when you get saved? You're a new new creation. You're born again. So it's the end of this season of life where your relationship with God rests on the law and the opening up of a new season where your relationship with God rests on Christ. For Paul, that occurred on that road to Syria, that road to Damascus. That's when it happened. For all believers, the law dies when you move from slavery to it to faith. When you move from, um, from, from seeking to save yourself through works to embracing the grace that's found in the gospel. From rejection of the king of kings to submission to the righteousness of God. The end of the law, this is the best way that I can understand it, and it, I think it's on the screen. The end of the law points to a time in a believer's life when he or she places trust in Christ and his work on the cross. That's what the end of the law means. Trust in Christ. Trust in what Martin Luther called the great exchange. Let me read you what Luther wrote about the great exchange. Y'all, this great exchange is the greatest deal ever. And Luther wrote this, By a wonderful exchange, our sins are no longer ours, but Christ's. And the righteousness of Christ is not Christ's, but ours. In other words, we give him our sin, he gives us his righteousness. Y'all, that's like the best deal you could ever make. He has emptied himself of his righteousness that he might clothe us with it and fill us with it. And he has taken our evils upon himself that he might deliver us from them. It's a glorious exchange, y'all, and more than 2,000 years of of church history, of studying the witness of Scripture, of studying the Bible, it really naturally leads us to a conclusion that obedience to the law or box checking was never meant to be, it never could, it never will be salvific. S-A-L-V-I-F-I-C. None of that will ever be salvific. In other words, checking boxes don't save you. And you may have spent your whole life checking boxes. It didn't save you. It won't save you. And it never will save. It never saved anybody. Abraham, Genesis 15, way back. Abraham believed. It's what the text of your Bible says. Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him with righteousness. Abraham believed and the Lord credited him with righteousness. It doesn't say Abraham did this and this and this and this. It doesn't say Abraham fed the hungry. It doesn't say that. It said Abraham is feeding the hungry good. Of course it is. But the Bible says Abraham believed and he credited it to him with righteousness. Faith alone. Now, God did entrust Israel, the Jews, with keeping um, and protecting the law, keeping and protecting his word, and they took that job seriously. The laws that the Lord put in place for them was for their benefit, not his benefit. The law directed uh, uh, them in every area of life. It directed them in how to live uh, harmoniously inside a covenant community. For Judaism back then and for Judaism right now, personal salvation 
depends on the person. For Judaism back then, for Judaism right now, my personal salvation depends on me. It's on me. Specifically, it depends on my obedience to the law. They believed, as I did for the first 37 years of my life, that my righteousness depends on me keeping the Torah, on me keeping the commandments, on me keeping all the rules and the regs in spite of what Genesis 15 says. And so, therefore, as Paul wrote in, in verse 3 of Romans 10, that they were ignorant of the righteousness of God and they sought to establish their own righteousness, they didn't submit to his. And so this, this righteousness that Paul's writing about is the same righteousness that the Lord credited to Abraham for his belief. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes Y'all, this is the remedy. He is the remedy. Jesus Christ is the remedy. And he is the only remedy. There's not multiple remedies. And you can believe there's another remedy all you want, but you would be sincerely wrong. He is the only remedy. Let me wrap this up neatly today. At some point in life, Every one of us will have a Damascus Road experience. Now, unfortunately, many folks are going to turn away in unbelief from that experience and create and establish their own righteousness and try to save themselves. But a remnant is going to look upon the Son, believe, and immediately be credited with his righteousness. In other words, saved. For those and only those, Christ is the end of the law. Y'all, somehow or the other, the Lord, will, he will reveal himself to you. Whether it be looking up in the sky, the heavens declare the glory of God, the Bible says. Or witnessing the, the amazing birth of a child. Or the miraculous healing of a friend or of a family member. Or seeing the life change that's brought about by the, Lord, uh, by the Lord's influence in the life of somebody that you know. And a major way that he reveals himself today is through the text of his Bible. Through the text of his word. Through the scripture. Or through it's the hearing of the word. Maybe it's you heard his voice in the message today. Maybe you heard his voice 10 years ago in a message and all of a sudden it's bearing fruit today. Maybe you heard a message 20 years ago and something happened today and all of a sudden it's at the forefront of your mind. If he has revealed himself to you, have you been running away from him? And maybe you've been running for a long, long time. Maybe. I did. Y'all, it is okay. Please hear this. If you don't hear nothing else today, it is okay to stop running. Let today be the day that you stop running. You know, maybe he revealed himself to you when you were in a very, very, very dark place. Maybe he revealed himself to you when you were deep in the pit. Maybe. A painful place. The death of a loved one, the the sickness of a loved one on the, on the bad side of a cancer diagnosis. Maybe you're in the middle of a super nasty divorce. Maybe you were in the pit of a hellacious addiction. Maybe he revealed himself to you in one of those horrific places and you have shaken your fist at him and you have shaken your fist at him for, why, God, are you doing this to me? Maybe you've been running around outside in your backyard looking up at the sky cussing him out, shaking your fist at him because he did this to you. Maybe it's okay to stop doing that today. And I don't care if you've been doing it and he don't care if you've been doing it for 30 years. It is okay to stop doing that today. Luke chapter 15, the prodigal son. Listen to what, listen to what this says. While he was still a long way off, who was a long way off? Me. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Who ran? Who ran? The father. The father ran to the son. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him. Y'all, he will run and embrace. He's been running and chasing you for years. Do you realize that? He's been running and he will hunt you down. He will hunt you down. In the middle of the pit, I don't care what the pit is. 
in the middle of the pit, in the middle of you walking by and spitting in his face, he will reach down and pull you out of the pit. Y'all, he will. He will. Don't buy the lie that he won't. Don't buy the lie that you just don't know what I've done. He does know what you've done. And he's going to reach down and hunt you down anyway. Y'all, it doesn't matter if it's been 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. Makes no difference. Y'all, let today be the day that Christ is the end of the law for you. It's faith alone in Christ alone. Y'all pray with me. Lord, let today be the day, and if you are listening to my words right now, and you have never said yes to that offer, that you've been shaking your fist, cussing God out for years, let today be the day that you turn from that sin and turn towards him. Repent and believe that the death on that cross, that Christ's death on that cross, paid your penalty. It wasn't free, it's free to you. But that death paid your penalty, took care of your debt. And just look up at the Lord and say, save me, and he will save you. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, let me tell you quickly, if that's you and that happened to you today, whether you're watching, if you're watching online, go to our Connect tab on our uh, website, churchonthetrail.org, and let us know. Let us know that happened. Because we, we want you to take the God plunge if that happened. Baptism. If that happened to you today, I would invite you to come down to the cross. Do you have to come down to the cross? No, you don't. But I would invite you to. If you've just got something that's been all over you for years and years, come leave it right there. Right there. And if it did happen and you want somebody to pray with uh, with you, and we would love to pray with you, um, in the back, back there, um, Deborah had her hand up. We would love to pray with you. We'd love to walk this journey with you. So let me turn it back over to our worship team.